the First Christian Church of Chasing brings you the good news Well, this week is our next to last week on this series, Portrait of Jesus, focusing on his different names, so on and so forth, some of the different names of Jesus, and today we're going to focus on Jesus saying that I am the door. A few weeks ago I preached a sermon on shepherdology. Today I want to preach another aspect of this same chapter, however, and look at another name of Jesus when he said, I am the door. In John chapter 10, I'd like to read verses 1 through 6. John wrote what Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. If by some chance today were your last day on earth, and we must admit that possibility, however remote it may seem, and you were called to stand before God, and he asked you this question, why should I let you into heaven? What would you answer? Think about that for a moment. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. If that is true, then we will one day stand before God as individuals to give an account. I don't believe necessarily that that is the question God will ask, nor will he necessarily phrase it that way. Still, the question is valid, and one which, if you believe the Bible to be true, we need to have the right answer to. So I ask you again, personally. Not so that you can give me some textbook definition, but personally. If you were called to stand before God and answer Him, what would your response be? Think on that while I pray. Most Holy God, I think about that very question what would my response to you be? I can't help but think, Lord, that I may have many different responses. I know one thing, Lord. I'm just going to be very thankful to be with you in heaven. I guess when I get there, I hope I have the right response to you because what I've done here, for I fear those people, fear for those people who will stand before you and not have the right response because they didn't respond to you correctly here. So today, Lord, as we contemplate this topic on Jesus being the door, I pray, Lord, we'll understand what it means to us that Jesus is the door. But not only that, Lord, how we live our life today, 
knowing Jesus is the door. And I thank you for the opportunity to share the word of God today. May our ears be open to what your word teaches us today, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in John chapter 10, Jesus gives us some further information on being the shepherd. The response of the sheep and the actions of a thief or a hireling. However, our main focus this morning is verses 7 through 10. Before we get there, however, let me set the stage just a bit. Jesus has been debating with the Pharisees and religious leaders of the day, and in chapter 10, verse 1, he likens them to thieves and robbers, those who would mistreat the sheep for their own selfish gain. He likens himself, on the other hand, in the theme we have already studied, to the true shepherd. Jesus is showing that his sheep hear his voice and they respond accordingly and do not respond to the call of the thieves and robbers. However, he also uses another name for himself in this discourse. And that's found in verses 7 through 10. And Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he who is saved then will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Here Jesus paints the picture of the open pasture lands where sheep are taken to graze and in the warm of summer months are sometimes left to sleep overnight. Left but not without security of course because constructed out in the countryside would be circular walled enclosures with one opening. Thick clusters of thorns would line the tops of these enclosures so as to guard against predators who would seek to steal sheep away in the night. Once the sheep were safely inside this pen, the shepherd would serve himself as the door, if you will, positioning his body to sleep at this lone entrance to the sheep pen. At one time, this same man could be said to both be shepherd and the door. Solving for us the puzzle of what might seem like a mixed metaphor Jesus employs here, for he himself says in succeeding sentences, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. So let's look at Jesus as the door. I'd like to share with you three facets of that name today, the door. The first one is found in verses 7 and 8. Jesus is the exclusive door. Getting ahead of myself. He's the exclusive door. Jesus' picture would again be familiar to the people of his day, since they understood such customs as we do not. The sheep pen had but one passageway. There was only one way for the sheep to get in, and only one way for the sheep to get out. And it was through this exclusive opening that Jesus says, He is the door. Jesus chose this metaphor for a reason. He's the master teacher. And this phrase would pack a spiritual punch to the Pharisees. When Jesus said, I am the door, 
we are given to understand that he is the only door by which the sheep may make their way into the fold. And if the sheep don't enter through that door, they stay outside for the evening. And similarly, Jesus is the one door by which we must enter or remain outside the kingdom of God. Religion doesn't work. We can be as religious as can be, but religious devotion which seeks to demonstrate our own goodness and our own worthiness is devoid of eternal benefit. David said something in Sunday school this morning that I think of right here. You and I will not get into heaven. We can't go to God and stand before God with that very question in mind. What would we respond to God if he says, why should I let you into heaven? It's not going to count if we say, God, well, you know, for all those years, every Sunday I was in that seat. At the first Christian church achievement, I had the same seat for all those years, every Sunday. I wouldn't even let people sit in my seat. They knew that was my seat. <laughs> you know what God will say? Well, I hate. To, maybe I shouldn't speak for God. This is dangerous ground. But maybe God would say, big deal. You sat in a seat for 30 years, 52 weeks, a year in that same seat. And I should let you in heaven because you were religious. That's not going to get us into heaven. Jesus is the only way. Now I know, that's a highly unpopular today. Downright intolerant, of course. Which is the worst thing that can, one can be in our politically correct culture of the day. Tolerance can only be the supreme virtue in a society which has lost the will and the means to distinguish right from wrong, truth from error, but doesn't that describe contemporary American culture today? And if tolerance is our chief value, then when it comes to matters of the spiritual nature, sincerity comes to be our chief requisite. You know the problem with tolerance? Tolerance is okay as long as you're the one being tolerant of everybody else. But don't expect everybody else to be tolerant of you. Christians! If you take a stand against homosexuality or against abortion or any other part that the Congress wants to debate today, then that's looked upon as hate speech. But I am to be tolerant of the lesbian and the homosexual and the bisexual and the transsexual and the whatever sexual they decide today in alphabet soup. I'm to be tolerant of the people who want to accept abortion, but they don't want to be tolerant of my stand against it. And that's the problem with tolerance. Now, sincerity is a fine word. No one values its antonym hypocrisy. A quality universally despised, though universally displayed. And yet, be assured of this, naked sincerity is not much of a virtue. For one can be sincere in belief and be sincerely wrong. 
this afternoon at lunch or sometime during the week, chances are good that you will enjoy some type of dish which involves a vegetable sincerely thought to be poisonous by many as late as only a century ago. In fact, George Washington Carver took to public stages to eat this particularly quote-unquote dangerous vegetable thought to be deadly by so many people he would lustily bite into a plump, juicy, red tomato. Where would we be as a society if we didn't have ketchup? <laughs> Think about it. Where would we how could we eat French fries without ketchup? What about people who put ketchup on everything? Potatoes, eggs, steak, I don't care. They couldn't live without their ketchup. <laughs> I remember seeing this movie it's called The Martian this guy gets left on Mars by his entire crew they think he's dead but he's alive and he's surviving and there's one he's, he's videotaping his whole length of time on Mars before he finally gets rescued but one, one of the scenes he's saying he goes why you know I'm so grumpy today? Today I ran out of ketchup. <laughs> Think about that. For centuries, people wouldn't eat tomatoes because they thought they were poisonous. You so sometimes sincerity has worse consequences, though. Many passengers on the Titanic were no doubt sincerely convinced that that ship would not sink. Sincerity alone was important to save many from a watery, icy grave. Sincerity to have practical value in life and in eternity must be grounded in truth when the sincerity of those passengers met with the truth of a massive iceberg, truth won. And they were sincerely wrong. You see, Jesus said, I am the door. He's the means whereby we can be reconciled to God and that is the truth. Yet many people won't accept the truth and continue through this life thinking that their ship won't sink. Number two. The narrow door. There's the narrow door. Verse 9. She said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In Matthew chapter 7, Verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And when we see a door, we understand that it is an access point. It's the place to enter the building. Jesus says, Enter. Now when you are remodeling a house, do you... Do you look at a lot of your you do look at a lot of places like hardware stores? And if you're like most people, you will look more than once at showers and tubs and toilets and cabinets and countertops and appliances and the list goes on and on and on. And no doubt at some point you'll look at doors as well. And some of the doors are beautiful 
etched glass and all sort of nice trim, and that's fine, but doors aren't made for admiring. They are made for entry. And it is not enough to stand and look at that door. We can stand and look at that door all day, or as my dad would have said, until the cows come home. But it's not worth anything until we turn the knob and enter. Turn the knob and enter. And there are plenty of people who seem to remain content to admire the door Jesus. We can count them as his fans. They like the uplifting feeling they get when they attend a worship service. Or they like good old gospel music. Or they enjoy other trappings of Christianity. Others admire Jesus as an ethical teacher. You know, say like a deist. The deist believes that there is a God who sort of kicked things off, got the ball rolling with the universe and all, but now he's a vacationing it sometime. He's away somewhere. And this person doesn't mind the idea of Jesus at all, so long as Jesus is understood as a moral teacher, nothing more. You could say that the deist has a solid admiration for Jesus. But the idea of entering through the door, Jesus is an idea that Diaz can't abide. But Jesus says, enter. You see, in these two verses in Matthew 7, Jesus gives us two choices. Now the first one is the door of human achievement. The door of human achievement. He tells us that this is a broad gateway. And the most people walk through this door. Most people, if they give any thought of spiritual things at all, they think in terms of doing those things which will qualify them morally to be good enough to achieve their version of heaven. Now, I'm a good person. I'll get there. I've never killed anybody. I always like that one. Well, I'm glad to hear you never killed anybody. That's going to be your pitch to God? For some, that would be some version of heaven on earth, wouldn't it? For someone like an atheist, who doesn't believe in any life after the grave, he's trying to find happiness and self-esteem. And for others, some version of heaven is, is in their thinking. But they try to get there by walking through the gate of human achievement. Think about it. Listen to some of these. Mormons. Mormons seek to become gods, little g, by exalting themselves toward godhood, through certain means. They believe that Jesus was simply a man who became God. And that God the Father was once a man like us. And so they tried to do the same. Well, if God the Father was a man like us, then obviously I could be a God too. By what? By human means. A human achievement. How about the Jehovah's Witnesses? Trying to make themselves worthy by their good works, to be one of the 144,000 that will be in heaven. And I say, I pity the poor 1,401. Imagine standing in that line. You're one, you're two, you're three, you're 142,000 and whatever. You're 144,000. Hey! And you're the next one in line. Wait a minute! I don't get in! Sorry. If you ever think that way, I want to hear. I want you to know this. What 
long past 144,000, folks. If you're waiting to hoping you're one of those, ah, that's a tough one to wait for. You, probably, you might as well go out and buy yourself a lottery ticket because the odds of winning the lottery are a whole lot better than you're going to be one of the 144,000 after all these centuries. Just a thought. Don't go buy a lottery ticket, though. Secularist. What about a secularist? He tries to achieve his version of heaven on earth through his human reasoning. Ah, oh, I'll just think about this, and whatever I come up with, that'll be my form of heaven on earth. The New Agers and Buddhists, they try to stimulate their inner godhood through philosophy and rituals. <coughs> And then you have your Muslims. They engage in all sorts of religious activity in order to appease Allah. Now the truth is that all these various approaches can ultimately be rolled into one under the caption, what can I do to earn my way into my understanding of heaven? My understanding of heaven. What Paul say in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What? Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You mean my works won't get me into heaven? Guess not. Which leads us to the second door. Now let's call that the door of divine accomplishment. Jesus tells us that this door is narrow. And not many find it. It is unattractive to our human pride. Because those who do enter cannot claim that they deserve what they find when they walk through it. Those who enter this gate can boast no self-achievement. Because the salvation that is found through Jesus rules out our good deeds as a contributing factor. Instead, the salvation that is found through the door of divine accomplishment is wrapped up in what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. He paid the price that we could not possibly pay. He did for us what we could not possibly do. His death was a propitiation. Or a cover-up for our sins. It satisfied in one fell swoop both the righteous wrath of a holy God and the requirement of love as well. For it was God himself who paid the price for our sin. Let me ask you this question. <coughs> Is it easy or difficult to enter the narrow gate. Ponder that for a moment. <coughs> How many think it's easy to walk through the narrow gate? No hands. <coughs> How many think it's difficult? How many don't know and they're not sure they want to say? <laughs> <laughs> the best answer I think is this. Yes. Right? Is it easy or difficult? Yes. You see, in one sense it's easy, in another sense it's very difficult. To enter into that gate involves me turning away from any self effort, 
putting all of my trust in Jesus Christ as the one who paid the price sufficient to secure my salvation. That happens apart from any good deeds done on my part. And in that sense, it is a very easy thing to enter the gate. You don't have to go out and do a whole bunch of good stuff to make amends or to turn uh, over a new leaf or join a church or anything. Jesus said, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32. Repent, confess, be baptized, believe in Jesus. All those go together for salvation. Enter through that narrow gate. So why is so many people going through the wide gate? And yet, recognizing that we contribute nothing whatsoever to our salvation, unless you count the awful sin that God forgives, cuts against the grain of our natural pride and self-reliance. It's a blow to our egos to admit that we are helpless, hopeless, and not the good people that we think we are. It isn't easy to admit that, that I'm not okay, and neither are you. It isn't particularly easy to abandon the belief that you get what you pay for, but abandon it you must, because in salvation you get what Jesus paid for. And that's called grace. And if you got what you paid for, you'd get eternal separation from God in hell. And in this sense, it's a difficult to humble ourselves and come through the narrow gate. But that is what we must do. Because our baggage of pride and self-reliance won't fit through that narrow gate. And you know, when I think about that, it says it's a narrow gate. How wide does it have to be for us to get through? I like to think it's a narrow gate. And I look at it, it's like, maybe I can't just walk through the easy, the difficult. Maybe I need to slide through. It's that narrow. Maybe I need to put in some of my own effort to go through the narrow gate. Because that's the way to go. Think about it. He never says how narrow the narrow gate is. Or how wide the wide gate is. Maybe the narrow gate means not only slide through, but maybe I need to duck down a little bit to get through. You see, to go through the narrow gate, it's something I want to do. I got to do. The wide gate is anybody can do it. Because it's that easy. And if everybody can do it, then I'm just like everybody else, aren't I? Now back to my opening question. If you stood before God today and He asked you why He ought to let you into heaven, would you point to your human achievements? I'm a good, moral person. I regularly attend worship service. I never hurt anyone. I help whoever I can. You see, these all point to you. 
in your human achievements. You want to go enter God's heaven on your accomplishments. And that's the broad gate. And Jesus said that leads to destruction. Jesus says he is the door that leads to heaven. The narrow gate. And there is only one way in and that's through Jesus Christ. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. See, this is how you are saved from experiencing the wrath of a just God. It says, if anyone enters through me. That means Jesus is the one who holds the key and sets the standard. Not you and not me. Must be under his rule. And I, I know oftentimes this is misunderstood by many people who think all you have to do is believe and you'll be saved. The scriptures are most clear that baptism is essential to God's plan of salvation. I want you to consider some important verses for me to clear up this issue about baptism not being essential. Think about this. It says we have to enter through Jesus, right? Romans 6, 3-4 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You see, there's only one way into heaven. And that's through faith. We repent, we confess, and we're baptized into Christ. We go through Jesus. And that points to the third facet of the door. It's the abundant life door. That Jesus talked about in verse 10. That term abundantly in our text is a bit outdated. Not a word we use every day. Perhaps if I may say it this way, I came that they might have eternal life and have it in huge quantities. And that's what Jesus is the doorway to. Heaven and eternal life will be far greater than we can imagine. But so is the abundant life we have here on earth that comes through Jesus. Now, I know that there are people out there who think Jesus is talking about health and wealth from a standpoint here on earth. Well, I don't think that is what he was referring to at all. Jesus is talking about this in a spiritual sense. So let's take a look at this abundant life picture in a different way. A life abundantly. A life abundant in love. True love, like we can only know in Jesus, in a world full of hatred. We can have abundant life in inner peace. The peace that passes all understanding in a world full of turmoil. Abundant life in joy that we receive in knowing Christ in a world where happiness comes and goes. How about abundant life in purpose? The blessed direction of the mission of Christ in a world that doesn't make much sense. Abundant life in wisdom. Provided through the blessings of our Father in a world that is ever learning but never coming to truth. Abundant life in prosperity in our soul. 
assurance and hope in a world that measures prosperity by such silly things as bank accounts, IRAs, and net worth. And then abundant life and great retirement plan. Heaven and eternity with our Father. And need I say more? I'd say that we have by faith accepted the plan of Christ, repented of our sins, confessed the name of Jesus, and been immersed into Christ, are living an abundant life here, and have the promise of an abundant life to come. I want to close with this illustration. There's a famous painting of Jesus standing at a door, knocking, and it's been called Jesus Knocking on Heart's Door. The real key to that painting is that there is no doorknob on the door. And some have said that this means you have to open the door for Jesus to come in. I don't follow that same thought. I think what the picture is portraying is that you and I are on the outside. And we must go through the door of Jesus to get to eternal life. In other words, we are the ones who must open and pass through the door. Not Jesus. We get through on his terms, not ours. Because in that picture, Jesus is pictured, not you and not me. We're going to get to heaven. We go through Jesus, not the other way around. So Jesus said, I am the door. Have you entered through Jesus, the door? Now that's a question. That's a question you need to really answer. Because if you don't answer that question today the right way, well, the other question I asked you at the beginning of the sermon isn't really as important, isn't it? Because <coughs> it's like I said earlier, what we do here with the Word of God answers what our answer will be to God when we stand before Him. What did you do for your eternity here? You see, I like to do it, look at it this way. While I'm here, I'm making my travel reservations. Because once I'm there, there's only two places for me to end up. Whatever I did here, or whatever a reservation I didn't do here. See, the scripture says, are we written in the Lamb's book of life? Well, we get written in the Lamb's book of life because of what we do here. We by faith repent, we by faith confess, we by faith are baptized into Christ, we by faith live that faithful life. You know, and there our name is, the Lamb's book of life. Making our reservation. But if we're not willing to do that here, enter through the narrow gate, go through Jesus, there's no, my name's not in the Lamb's Book of Life. When I get there before God, he might say, where's your ticket? <laughs> and I say, I don't have a ticket for this train.